Okay, okay. So, uh, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Stephen Horn, independent journalist from North Carolina. Stephen, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. No problem. Uh, so, uh, as I was saying before we started, the the reason I first came across uh, you and your work was your documentary about January sixth, and then um, I spotted uh, yesterday on Twitter that you had been sentenced. Um, along with um, the January 6th rioters as a journalist who was on site filming what was going on. And I was just stunned that they could do that. Um, I, I just didn't didn't even believe it. Um, so I decided to reach out and, and yeah, awesome that you're here to chat. Yep, yep, I'm, I'm glad to be here. No problem. So... I guess, um, yeah, the best place to start is like, do you want to give people like a little idea of, of who you are generally and like what your background and, and journalistic experience is before we go into January 6th and everything you saw there? Yeah, yeah. So I'm an independent journalist here in North Carolina. Um, I'm in the, the Raleigh area. That's uh, the, the capital of North Carolina. So my, my journalism experience prior to January 6th was not that much. Um, you know, I, I had worked some on some journalism-related projects in the past. I had worked on a 21 DVD series, uh, documentary series that we did on the Civil War. I had also worked on uh, investigation in Nigeria, where we had come across uh, uh, the headmaster of an orphanage or boarding school who is uh, abusing his students. We had sort of done investigative, investigative, investigatory. Um, project there where we researched it, put out a video with, with interviews from uh, victims and witnesses. But I didn't really start doing independent journalism on my own uh, until the summer of 2020 when I saw the, the riots that were happening across the nation. It really seemed to be independent journalists and some you know new media journalists who are really doing the best job going out there on the ground and accurately covering what was happening in these cities across America. So do you want to tell people a little bit what, what you saw in, in 2020 uh, when you were covering the riots in, in North Carolina? Yeah, so, um, you know, here, here in Raleigh, there was the biggest riot was very early on, right after George Floyd's death. I did not go out there for that. Um, I didn't observe that. But that, that was the biggest one. I believe there are tens of millions of dollars in property damage. So I was more covering... The ones I was covering were more sort of aftershocks, I guess, because they were, you know, much smaller in, in scale and scope, but they were sort of going out there with, um, it might have even been a different intent because um, what I saw was, um, I guess, sort of radical left-wing activists that would uh, normally be termed as Antifa, you know, going out in black block. And so they would, there would be, you know, maybe a couple hundred protesters who had come out for an event, you know, the, the flyer for the event wouldn't explicitly state that, you know, the purpose of it was to destroy things, but, you know, it'd be held at night, which is generally uh, a bad sign for a, a demonstration of that sort. And then the, the protesters who showed up to be peaceful would be used as sort of cover for these, um, you know, Antifa who plan to go out there with the intention to be violent. You know, if you bring a can of spray paint, you bring your crowbar, you bring whatnot, you know, that that's a pretty good indicator that you have something planned. And so that that was what I was observing was that it was sort of a, 
a small percentage of the the people at these demonstrations that were willing to to commit these crimes, but the the people who were marching around, alongside them were, I guess, you know, I, I, I guess it depends how much, you know, participation you want to ascribe to that, where they're sort of marching, they're acting as cover. Um, because if, if you go out in the street with 10 of your friends, start breaking this, the police are going, are bringing stuff, the police are going to show up, arrest you. But if you have, you know, a couple hundred people standing around, who are willing to, you know, sort of run interference between you and the police. Now you can go down the street, break stuff, spray paint signs, and, you know, get away with it. You were seeing, like, a lot of... Yeah, you were seeing that, that it was mostly peaceful, <laughs> to quote the hilariously famous line. But um, but it was, yeah, that sort of the... Gra the the mostly peaceful aspect of it was being exploited by others to then, yeah, not be peaceful. Basically. Yeah, and it was kind of like a, a symbiotic effect because that, you know, that this wasn't this wasn't like a, a brand new phenomenon. You know, you have the the first riot that you know is very large, you know, crowd definitely in the thousands, probably tens of thousands, and so then you have these later events you know, only, only a couple hundred people are showing up. And so then I think probably most of those people who showed up, even though they were peacefully demonstrating, they're doing it with the knowledge that, you know, their presence there was allowing the more radical elements to do what, what they wanted without interference, either from their fellow activists or from the police. Okay. So then on to January 6th. Um, so what what actually motivated you to go to go and and, and do some some filming on, on January 6th? So I actually couldn't tell you how far North Carolina is from, from DC, but I assume not close. Yeah, so it's uh, about five or six hours drive, um, depending on the traffic. So um, you know, I'm I'm on the right politically, but I'm not a Trump supporter. Mm -hmm. But I sort of saw the Trump phenomenon, you know, Trump rallies few were, were obviously very energetic in a way that, that they weren't passionate about very many other candidates at all. So I had sort of wanted to attend one in person for a while, you know, not, not to support the then president, but just to observe in person to, you know, get a, get a sense of what it was like before there were no more Trump rallies. Hmm. So... Um, he had actually come to North Carolina shortly before the election, but as a serial procrastinator, um, I didn't go. And so when I finally heard about January 6th, um, this protest where Trump himself is supposed to be there, he's tweeting about it. I'm like, okay, this is probably my, my last opportunity to see this sort of Trump rally in person. Um, so I, I found some, uh, some people who are organizing a bus to go. Um, it was convenient, you know, leaving at 1 a.m. in the morning and getting back pretty much 1 a.m. that the next morning just to go out there for the day. And so I, I brought my camera with me that the journalism, I had built sort of some custom journalism equipment for safely covering riots, which I can go into a little later. Um, but but basically, um, I had seen the coverage of the the large you know, stop the seal or Trump rally in November. I had seen the coverage of, of sort of the second large stop the seal Trump rally in December in DC. 
And what had happened at those was that there was the street level violence. You know, people had been stabbed. There is a viral video of Charles Downs, or I believe he and his fiance are are trying to get back to the hotel and the counter protesters are attacking them, pushing them, throwing drinks at them. So that was that was sort of the the stuff I had in mind that I would potentially cover if I saw it. So I brought my camera along. I was like, I'm I'm you know, my bus is going to be leaving before it gets dark, which is when, you know, most of the violence happens, but I'll bring my camera. If I do come across any of this, I'll document it and publish it because this this was something that once again the the mainstream media was not sending their journalists out to cover. It was, you know, I believe it was Drew Hernandez who captured that video. So it was independent journalists or journalists associated with new media who are the only ones covering that. So I wasn't planning on covering the rally itself because you know, hundreds of maybe even thousands of journalists covering their rally. I didn't really, you know, see anything I would add there. But in terms of being willing to go put myself in risk to cover these more dangerous situations, that was somewhere where I saw, you know, sort of something where, where I could contribute to the public interest. Yeah. Okay. So you get how do, how do you how do you like what do you bring in with you to safely cover uh something that might get violent yeah so basically one of one of the very first demonstrations i covered in raleigh i saw um a local news crew who was actually there covering it surprise but what i saw was that they were getting surrounded and assaulted you were trying to throw punches at them and this this wasn't a an ordinary news group because in addition to the the cameraman and the the journalist they had two huge security guards so i was like okay if these, you know, if these security guards who are twice the size as me aren't enough to, you know, deter attackers, um, what am I going to do if I get attacked? So I decided to go the other way and go with uh, basically staying under the radar. So I, I uh, got a like a skateboard helmet, like many uh, rioters or demonstrators would wear at events like this, carved out some of the foam on the inside and basically put a camera in there. So I had a that's what I used to record on January 6th as a helmet with sort of a covert camera in it. Because what I witnessed at these riots is that the, the rioters very much did not want to be filmed or have their pictures taken when they're committing crimes because they're kind of aware that uh, that was a bad idea for them. So they had a very strong, you know, no media when we're rioting policy. So, you know, I, I put this custom camera together so that when I was filming them, uh, the rioters would not be aware that they were being filmed. Okay, wow, that's smart. I wouldn't have thought of that. <laughs> I'd be that idiot there getting attacked. <laughs> oh, yeah. So yeah, smart move, man. Uh, so, so yeah. So then you arrive on January sixth at the Capitol. Were you there? Um, were you actually at the Capitol before Trump finished speaking when, when some of the early like uh, pushback had happened or were you watching Trump speak? Yeah. So I, I was still over in that, the area where Trump was speaking, uh, you know, the ellipse is where they actually had the event. It's right next to the Washington monument. And, you know, there is huge crowd gathered and basically there, there's an, uh, there's a whole block that's basically, you know, a park grassy area with the Washington Monument in the center. So that was where most of the crowd was. So I was sort of, um, I guess, maybe wandering around that area, but basically walking back and forth, walking down the different streets, just trying to get a feel of, of the whole area. And so I, I didn't arrive at the Capitol 
until I believe Trump had finished speaking at that point and the riot had been going on for about an hour when I arrived at the Capitol. Yeah, okay, so um, maybe for, for the context of people who haven't watched your documentary um, and haven't sort of looked at this, so um, at that point, the, the police had already been pushed back a couple of times, um, right? This, they'd, they'd already sort of like retreated a little bit in the face of, of people yeah, getting quite violent and pushing the, the barriers and trying to shove past them. So they like retreated from the outer areas, um, like right to back up basically towards the Capitol steps, right? Yeah. So basically, yeah, you're absolutely correct that what I consider to be the beginning of the riot is around 1253. Um, you know, just before one o'clock, there were a few police at the outer perimeter of Capitol grounds. And so for whatever reason, a couple of the Trump supporters who are gathered there while Trump was still speaking, they start pushing the barricades out of the, to the side, you know, advancing to where the police officers are. They start... Uh, they start shoving back and forth with the police officers. They start throwing punches. And so those those few police officers there, they retreat, call for backup, and the police are able to form sort of a main line. Yeah, at, at the bottom of the, the Capitol steps, there are sort of two large sets of staircases, staircase on the west side of the Capitol going up to what is you know the main level. And so they're able to form a line across there to sort of guard those two staircases. And that's where the crowd, you know, sort of continues to gather is the, the Trump supporters who were over, you know, where Trump was giving the speech begin to arrive at the Capitol and sort of fill out those Capitol grounds. Yeah, I'm just going to pull this up for people, actually, because I can get your documentary up and show the very, very useful graphics that you had um so that people can have a look here we are so um i'm not sure if you can see this but for people watching um you can see that there was um initially a perimeter outside here at these two spots that you can see the the outer circles and then further in um is where they then got pushed back to uh so Immediately at that point, at that point in the documentary, you're you're already sort of discussing how quite a few of the Capitol Police felt unprepared. So, so from from your understanding, like what was the, yeah, what did they feel like they had not been warned about what was going to happen? Were they like not trained? Like what what was going on there? Because it, it feels like, uh, and I mentioned this before we started, that they were very almost taken taken off guard by this which seems weird given as i mentioned like i was already telling people for weeks being like there's something's going to go down on january 6th like when trump has this speech and then there's going to be you know however many hundreds of thousands they wanted like a million but you know i i could tell that there was there was going to be it was going to be a highly strong and very fraught atmosphere and yet the Capitol Police didn't really seem prepared for what happened. Yeah, so the, the Capitol Police on that day, they were prepared um, to some extent for like uh, an ordinary gathering. You know, if you have a gathering of a lot of people there, even if it doesn't turn into any sort of rioting, you know, there's always a potential for there to be some sort of issue where the, the police need to get involved. So they did have police on standby. You know, the Capitol Police had their civil disturbance unit which is the officers you'll see in some of the videos where they have like a huge helmet on, you know, chest armor, 
armor on their arms, big batons, shields. And they also had Metropolitan Police as well. So there's a, a separate police department for the Capitol building and the Capitol grounds than there is for the rest of the city. So the Metropolitan Police Department, which polices, you know, the rest of the city, they, they had, you know, units, um, you know, there's sort of same civil disturbance units for, for crowd control on standby as well. So as soon as you had this, this initial violence at the Capitol, they start calling those units, calling for reinforcements. But yeah, it does seem that they they were not at all prepared for the level of of energy and drive that was there in the crowd. And, you know, we've got some sort of drips and breadcrumbs from like what various intelligence agencies might have known or what the Capitol Police's own intelligence department might have known. And it seems, you know, for, from the people who have researched that angle of it a lot more, it seems like there is definitely... Uh, a huge lack of communication between people who were aware of potential threats and then the people who would actually be in place to deal with those threats. You know, Trump, as we, as most people have probably heard, you know, he has suggested that, uh, you know, 10,000 National Guardsmen should be in the Capitol to make sure everyone was safe. And, you know, but I, I think he was, you know, more likely thinking of in terms of the, the street level violence at the previous rallies that I had referred to, you know, where he's seeing his supporters getting attacked and he's saying there should be this many National Guard out there protecting my supporters. You know, I, I don't think he was he was aware that that his supporters were, were going to do what they ended up doing. And so there were a couple hundred National Guardsmen, but you can even go look back now that the mayor of D.C., basically put out a proclamation beforehand or through a press office or whatever saying, you know, we talked and these National Guardsmen, they're, they're not going to come in with any weapons. They're basically just going to be, you know, offloading some of the responsibilities from the police, like, you know, traffic control and stuff like that. So basically what you had is for the, the majority of the riot, it was only Capitol Police and Metropolitan Police who were there you know, present to actually deal with the rioters. Whereas throughout the summer of 2020, you know, as I mentioned in the documentary, there's a whole list of federal agencies. There are so many federal agencies that are sending, uh, you know, police officers to help, you know, deal with the rioting in DC that half them, I was like, why do these agencies even have, you know, SWAT teams or, or crowd control units as part of the agency? But you know, yeah, it was Bureau of Prisons, military police, obviously National Guard. I believe they, they might have borrowed some police from Virginia and Maryland. But you had and all these these different federal departments that, you know, you wouldn't even think of having police had come to D.C. in 2020 to help out. But, you know, on this day in 2021, you you didn't have all of those police departments. You just had the, the Capitol Police and the Metropolitan Police primarily you know, out there on the lines, you know, trying to, to fight back against the rioters. Yeah. So apparently, sorry, I'm just looking up here. It says that um, former chief of the U.S. Capitol Police says security officials at the House and Senate rebuffed early requests to call in the National Guard ahead of a demonstration. So, so yeah, there was people asking, seemingly, there were some people at least asking for extra support that weren't getting it. Um which is interesting. So, so like, yeah, before we go into then, like what happened later on in that day. So, um, so you, yes, yeah, so you were at the Trump rally. 
and then you sort of came down towards the capital like like what was the general like atmosphere on the day at least from like your perspective was it like one of like anger was there like something like was it like simmering under the surface like did you get a sense that something like that was gonna that something was gonna kick off when you were there or or did it all seem yeah sort of... so so when i was at the the rally over by the ellipse and the washington monument with the crowds there i did not get the sense that you know they're they're about to break out into a riot that that was not the sense i was getting at all you know i think they are definitely upset they're definitely expressing their grievances um but you know i i didn't necessarily detect anything that was out of line from the the many trump or stop the seal rallies where no rioting had occurred um and so i guess i i didn't end up listening too much of the trump speech they they didn't really have good acoustics or or video from what they're broadcasting to to the crowd outside of the ellipse sorry i think my camera might be getting out of focus yeah it is just a tad um so i'll just while you fix yes. that um i'm just gonna shoot. yeah sorry about that oh don't worry about that um yeah what... so so basically um yeah, where was I? Oh, yeah. So I was, you know, I, I was wandering around. I went down to Black Lives Matter Plaza, you know, seeing what what counter protesters were there. And it was, I, I was surprised because there were almost zero counter protests, you know, probably probably less than 10. You, know, you just had a, a couple random counter protesters who were hanging out at Black Lives Matter Plaza. There wasn't the same gatherings that there had been at the, the previous two events. So, you know, some people have have pointed to that as evidence that, you know, the counter protesters were infiltrating the crowd instead. Um, I'm not sure. Or maybe they had just gotten the, the same sense that that people like you had that something was going to happen. And so they just stayed home. But, you know, that that was something I noticed. And so as you know, I was walking around, I noticed you know, Trump supporters are moving from the, the area where the 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 rally is and they're they're moving down uh to the capital so i end up you know going along with that flow there and it wasn't until i almost reached the capital um just sort of on the street i guess sort of the last block or something before hitting capital grounds where i started to notice the same energy in the crowd that i was familiar with from covering riots and demonstrations in raleigh okay so so then at this point had the once you started to arrive once you got like in sight of the capital were were they already pushing police back from that perimeter that they set up or um had that not yet happened yeah so this was this was about an hour after that initial violence so um yeah at this point the police have been they they formed a line, you know, in front of those staircases, and they've been holding that line for about an hour. And they actually weren't just holding the line. As they received reinforcements, they were actually pushing that line forward. And that that is sort of the period of time I focused on in the documentary because uh, it's a period of time that that is skipped by by a lot of people sort of covering the events of the right. It's like there's this initial violence, and then oh. You know, almost over an hour later, they they break into the actual capital. Like, okay, well, what what was happening in that time period? You know, what was going on? What were the police doing? What was what were the rioters doing? Um, and so, you know, when I arrived there, I'm not aware of any of that. Um, it was even before I saw any of the the violence or 
you know, anything that any fencing that had been moved or destroyed. I, I just sort of sensed it in the crowd. And I'm not even sure what, you know, which of my senses I was putting together subconsciously, but I could just, you know, sort of tell that um, it was body language or whatnot, but that these people were, were in the same state of mind that, that I had seen rioters be in, you know, in North Carolina. So that's when I pulled my helmet out of my backpack, turned the camera on, put it on and start recording. And so from that moment, I was just focused on, you know, documenting, recording video so that, you know, I could, I could publish it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, so I'm just looking at your, some of the footage here of that. So people can see here that um, we've got 159. The police are still holding that line outside that front part. And then it jumps on forwards and 228. So to, by, to at half past two in the afternoon, basically, they were still there. There's a bit sort of more pushing going on, but there hadn't been. Yeah. So so two 2.30, if I recall correctly, is about when that line finally does retreat. And the reason they retreated has been sort of debated. Um, shortly before they retreat, they had sort of accidentally deployed tear gas in their own line. So some officers were suffering from the effects of, you know, the police tear gas. Yeah. But they had also been sort of um, subverted. People had gotten around their flank and were behind them. So when they're by 2.30, when they're defending that line, they're not really defending anything anymore because people have gotten around them. People are going into the Capitol. People are spreading out through the Capitol. So they have, um, you know, their, their best trained, best equipped, best armored officers for, you know, stopping rioters. They're all, you know, sort of kind of far out from the Capitol, down at the bottom of these steps when the rioters are up at the Capitol building you know, actually going in, wandering through the halls. So so by the point they were treated, they had already been sort of bypassed and made irrelevant to the defense of the Capitol. Okay. So then once people start then how how close were you to the front at that at that stage? So basically I arrived just before um the, the police retreated up the Northwest staircase and allowed rioters to, you know, gain access to, to the Senate wing door and start smashing through. So I, I got there, I guess, sort of just at the end of that period. And I ended up coming right on the staircase where the police retreated and rioters were able to, to get up there behind the police line. So I, I, I actually, because there is the scaffolding and the staircase there, I, I could not actually see the main police line. All I saw when I arrived, well, the, the first thing I saw was uh, a man named Derek Vargo being carried off on an improvised stretcher. He had been severely injured after being pushed off the side of the staircase by the police. And so what I see was, when I come there is he's being carried off. I see just a couple of police officers up on the staircase. People start throwing objects at them and then they retreat. And then just a whole lot of people moving up the staircase. So at that point, I was I was not aware of you know that the tactical situation regarding the the line where the police officers still were. I was just like, this is where everyone's going. I'm gonna go along with them and you know record, document what I can. Yeah. Okay. So then, 
at that point you're moving up the stairs and you're headed like basically in into the capital like at the point once because this is the stuff i really wanted to, to ask about because I, I haven't seen just random videos on the internet and then what's your your like your footage um it doesn't feel like once that line had been broken that there was an awful lot of resistance it felt like the police had sort of just like decided we're just gonna let them go in at this point like it, yeah i i think what it was is that um Basically, that they had put all the reinforcements as they're arriving, you know, the Metropolitan Police officers that arrived even shortly before that staircase was breached. They, they had, you know, a squad, maybe 20 heavily armored Metropolitan Police officers march right by the bottom of the staircase. But they just joined the main police line there instead of reinforcing the officers who are halfway up the staircase who are really being being pressured by the rioters on the staircase and the rioters below the staircase who were throwing objects at them. So I think more what it was is that they had put all of their, um, you know, riot trained police, all the police officers who were in their civil disturbance units who had that gear, um, you know, more of that training, they had all deployed them in that area. So then when people get past that line, the police officers they're encountering are police officers who are not prepared for that. They're not deployed for that. Um, you know, may not have gotten as much training in that. So I think that the later encounters you see with the police officers, you know, inside the Capitol or whatnot, I think that's really what you have to understand is that these police officers were, were not the police officers who are expecting to do that. So basically, once once the rioters get past the police officers who are ready for rioters, then the rest of the police officers you know, you, you have them doing different things. Some of them are like, okay, you know, we're, we're kind of standing down. We're, we're not going to fight you, but, you know, we're, we're just going to watch what you're doing, make sure you don't escalate. And so, but then you had other police officers who did try to defend certain choke points inside the Capitol. So, but you, you know, you have these different videos. You have videos of police, you know, leaning in for selfies or shaking hands or giving fist bumps. And then you have other police officers who are doing the opposite, who are clearly very angry and, you know, doing whatever they can to, to stop the rioters from getting, you know, one inch further. And so I think that that is what a lot of people have seen this, this disparate response is because the, the, the defense basically broke down once they got past that, that main police line and the, the response from then on was not, you know, well-coordinated or, you know, even along the same lines with the same tactics. Yeah, and I mean, I guess, and and you sort of right, rightly pointed out quite early on um, in the the documentary that there's a very good chance that a lot of them were not that were try, like actively trying not to be violent in their response as to not escalate the situation. You know, they were trying to be as as sort of non confrontational as possible in a lot of cases in order to avoid further violence. Yeah, and you have, you have even even there, you have you know some groups of police officers were quite obviously trying to avoid escalation, avoid avoid violence, but you know on that main police line they were throwing flashbangs sort of deep into the crowd, and you know hitting people. There there were people at the front who were more confrontational. Sometimes they were physically fighting. Sometimes they were spraying each other. But then when they're taking the flashbangs, they're launching them and hitting people who weren't engaged in violence with them. 
And you can definitely see from some of the videos, you know, a flashbang goes off and you can just hear this sort of roar from the crowd in response, whereas this, this police tactic, whatever they are intending with it, the effect of it was was to make people more angry and make them more likely to do violence. Mm. So so even there you have sort of you know different police different police officers, maybe different commanders or different training are acting in different ways and you don't have this this coordinated response. Yeah. And I mean uh, so then do you want to did you you got inside the building itself um, with the camera? Am I right? Yes. Yeah. So basically, you know, I get there, I see the the police retreat on the northwest staircase. People are going up there, so I I follow that crowd, and that crowd ends up going into the Capitol, and so I follow them in there. Basically, follow them uh, where they go in the Capitol. Just you know, having that that same idea in my mind of documenting. I'm recording video you know, with the intent to, to publish this. Yeah. So then, um, what did you, what did you like personally witness in there? Like what, what were you seeing? Were you seeing people sort of just wandering around? Did you see any, any of the, 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 uh, cause there was a few tussles with police and then there was, um, to Ashley, Ashley Babbitt who'd got shot, um, by a, yeah, a couple yeah. of like, did you witness any of that or was that not in the area you were in? Yeah, for sure. So basically, um, the the center wing door where I entered through, I believe it was the, the door that most people who entered the Capitol on that day, you know, the rioters, the crowd, um, the journalists who were with them, I believe, you know, that, that was basically the main entrance where people entered through. So um, a lot of the major spots were, you know, people who came in there. So I was sort of you know, following, going where the crowd was. So I ended up, you know, hitting major spots because the, the people who are doing stuff there, you know, came down down the same hallways from the same door where I did. So um, I, I did witness violence with the police in a room called the Crypt, which is under the rotunda. Um, yeah, yeah. So there I couldn't necessarily see much of what was going on. But you could see the police, they were holding the line and then they weren't anymore. I didn't really see what happened, but it was, you know, police officers were getting pushed off to the side. And there, there was sort of this strange dynamic that I hadn't really witnessed personally or even, you know, witnessed and in, in people covering in the media at previous events where basically the police officers, um, you know, if they're blocking a hallway or something, they were the enemy for the riders. So people were attacking them, people were trying to push past them. But then once they were out of the way, you know, there, there are people there, I guess, sort of willing to protect them. So it was like they, they still had some of that, you know, back the blue mentality where they wanted to protect the police officers, but not enough that they would stop the riders from attacking them when they were in the way. But then once they were out of the way, then they're sort of, you know, trying to protect them, trying to make sure they they weren't further injured, I guess. So there's sort of this odd dynamic there is one of the things there that I was recording. And so I yeah, I followed the crowd um eventually to to the house chambers. Um I wasn't exactly sure <laughs> where I was at uh, most points inside the Capitol because I, I wasn't uh, familiar with the floor plan going in there. Um, and so I get there to to the house doors. I can hear they're they're trying to beat down the door. 
um, trying to break it down. I think that that's where there was, uh, um, you know, a photo capture that was very viral where you can see like a pain broken out and a, you know, a police officer with a gun there. Yeah. So, um, you know, pe people have talked about, you know, the danger to uh, members of Congress or whatever on that day, but um, they, they never breached, you know, sort of the final line, which was police officers with firearms who were prepared to use those firearms. And so it was just um, basically one hallway and one staircase away from that where Ashley Babbitt um, was shot. So I was not too far away. If I had seen the group break off in that direction, I might have followed them, you know, documented wherever they went. But, um, you know, yeah, yeah, I ended up being, I guess, sort of, yeah, a hallway, a couple turns away from where she was shot. And so shortly, after, I believe it was shortly after she was shot, you know, there was sort of started to be, you know, rumors or, or stories going through the crowd that, hey, someone's been shot. But um, if you're familiar with crowds, they're not great at disseminating uh, accurate information. So it wasn't really. In, so I, I tried to, you know, ask some people who were saying they had saw things, try to figure out what was actually going on. And it wasn't until outside the Capitol that um, I actually ran into John Sullivan, which you may have heard of. And he was you know, telling people, hey, I saw someone being shot and actually showing showing the video that he had where she had been shot. So what was like what was the actual atmosphere inside there like cuz uh, and because from from like watching your your documentary and and sort of other videos that have gone viral I've seen pictures of people like in the middle of the like sea of people storming through the doors I say storming ambling through the doors <laughs> in a lot of cases sort of just like oh wow we're we're in the capital, just like taking photos, um, and and someone shouting, and it's just like we will not be violent, and and obviously there was the tussle with the capital police officer that resulted in Ashley Babbitt getting shot, which is which is awful, um, but like generally, what what was the atmosphere like? What was was there? Did it seem violent at that stage? Because it, it said it, it honestly, some of the videos looked more like they were on. Um, on like some sort of like holiday, like tourist excursion, instead of like the insurrection that people describe it as. Yeah, so there's sort of a, a wide variance in that the mood and you know ambiance with with the crowd, you know, depending on the the location and the time inside the capital. So you know, there certainly are the videos where people are walking through National Statuary Hall inside the velvet ropes. Yeah. Um. But you know that that was on the next room down. You know there there were people who had walked through that exact same hall and then you know assaulted the police officers, pushed police officers who are trying to you know who are standing between them and the the House of Representatives, the House Chamber. So there is you know some sort of a scuffle there. They are pushed aside, um, and then like the police ended up deploying tear gas there to disperse those people who had gathered and were trying to break through. So. Um, you know, saw them deploy the tear gas. I ended up heading back to, to the rotunda. And when I was in the rotunda, there were people like hanging out there smoking marijuana. So it was like, you had this, this very disparate where like some people were like banging on the house, trying to break through the door. 
of the, the House of Representatives trying to get in. And then, you know, two rooms down, very large rooms, but two rooms down, you had people sitting on a bench, you know, passing a blunt around. So it was like, <laughs> it was like, like if you're looking to make one point or another, you can definitely find video that matches the point you're trying to make. And so, yeah, you can find plenty of video of people walking through the, the velvet ropes and that, the fact that that exists doesn't mean the video of the of people assaulting the police doesn't also exist because they were they were happening, you know, in the same building, sometimes even at the same time, sometimes just, you know, on the other side of a large room. Because when I, I don't know if you've seen the, the photo of me where I'm sort of up on the base of a statue leaning over filming, you know, there, that was in that same room, the rotunda, and that was, you know, Halfway across the room was where they were smoking marijuana. But then, you know, in that particular corner of the room at that exit, you know, there was sort of this this brawl, this scrimmage broke out between the people there and the police officers, and it got very violent. They're pushing the police officers. You know, some people had their flagpoles, they were hitting the police. Um, and so it was, yeah, it was just like from one moment to another, it could be a very different temperature in the crowd. And I think some of that was because. Um, you know, there are individuals in the crowd uh, who were, were ready to do stuff like that. You know, they would sort of coalesce in one area and then you would see the violence and stuff. And then the members of the crowd who weren't willing to do that, you know, they would be kind of a little back and then it would be like a completely different atmosphere. Get over the guys who are smoking a blunt. I mean, like, you, 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 if you're in there, you're like, well, this is the only time I'm going to get the opportunity to do this. Like, uh, <laughs> uh, wild. Anyway, so then, yeah, you've talked about like more the the more violent elements of of the people who who were inside the the capital on on those days, and I have to commend you on your your really really through the through the documentary and through this interview so far. You've you've maintained like an unbelievable level of objectivity. And I commend you for that. Like, uh, it's so rare to see. Um, so, so yeah, I much respect to you for that, man. Um, so now we're going to go a little bit into the the realm of speculation and um, things that you may not be like super comfortable. Like, oh, giving I, I have, if we're on. talking about federal informants, I have plenty of facts about those as well. Okay, well then, or, yeah, yeah, let's undercover federal officers okay. if that's the direction you're going yes that is because this because my honestly right my suspicions um suspicions i don't i don't like 100 percent think this uh, is definitely what happened my suspicions are that um federal agents both heard it was going to happen were on the ground instigating and that this is be this was used as an excuse to then pass further patriot act-esque pieces of legislation essentially and to further demonize people who were who were trump fans um for better or worse but uh that that's my suspicion so so you were there like did you see or or what's your what's your opinion on on whether there was like agent provocateurs and federal agents on the ground yeah so so i'll, I'll tell you what i saw and then i'll tell you what what i'm aware of well, I guess I'll tell you what I'm aware of, and then I'll tell you what I didn't see. Okay. Um, because basically, I wasn't there for that, you know, hour or more period where that crowd is getting, you know, amped and more hyped up and more angry and stuff. 
you know, before they actually broke through. I wasn't there for that. So there's numerous videos you can see people on bullhorns or whatever saying, go, go forward, go, maybe not directly saying attack the police, but basically go forward, uh, you know, go to the building, whatnot. And many of those people are very suspicious, both to me and to many members of the public, because they were encouraging people to engage in behavior that they themselves were not necessarily willing to engage in. That's, that's always a little suspicious. And so, so what I saw, you know, I wasn't there for that stage. So, so I didn't really see um, any of those people because I wasn't in the areas where they were and I wasn't there in the time period that, you know, they're really, really amping people up. So the question of whether, whether people like that who are on the bullhorns or stuff were, were federal agents or police, undercover police, I think that's less likely. Um, they're certainly acting as provocateurs. Um, I guess the question is basically, were, were they doing that because they were just Trump supporters who are passionate and thought this would help Trump, but they didn't want to get in trouble themselves? Or were they federal agents trying to get people to riot for whatever reason? Or were they anti-Trump and just getting people angry because they thought it would hurt Trump? And so I think for most of them, the, it's probably most likely that they were, they were just passionate Trump supporters who, who thought what they were doing would help Trump. But we do know that there were many undercover police officers in the crowd. And to start with, the, the group that there is the most evidence of is the undercover metropolitan police officers. Um, the, there is an electronic surveillance unit which I believe had 26 members on January 6th. Um, it's not entirely clear how many of those were um, undercover in the crowd. I believe uh, there, there's evidence that at least four or five of those 26 members were undercover. Uh, I guess the, the other 20 some, we don't know whether they were also undercover or more support or, um, you know, yeah, reviewing what, what they were gathering. So basically, these were people they sent in with cameras, um, you know, cell phones, maybe, you know, low-end professional cameras where they're dressed in plain clothes. They don't have any identification of police officers, but they were wearing um, bands on their wrists, you know, colored bands so that they could identify to each other. And they also had, you know, their, their police badge stashed somewhere hidden that they could pull out if they needed to. So... Their supposed purpose of being there was to, you know, take videos, take pictures, whatnot. I believe some of them were even live streaming back to, you know, the police to just document what was going on in the crowd. So we know for sure that those exist. And we know at least one of those is mentioned in a court document with that, the case against Fee Duong. So Duong is an individual. He was a Trump supporter. He was in the crowd. Uh, he ran into one of these police officers over by the Trump rally, shook up a conversation with them, you know, they introduced themselves, whatever. Um, and then he ran into that same police officer again uh, over at the Capitol. And so um, that undercover police officer uh, introduced Duong to an undercover FBI agent who sort of infiltrated Duong's group, which was sort of a uh, it was like a group of maybe like six to eight people in Virginia. They hung out. They were friends. They shot a lot of guns. I think that was, you know, originally what brought them together. 
was their their passion for guns but they eventually infiltrate that group that fbi agent gets one of the members of the group to purchase an illegal short-barreled rifle he gets arrested goes to prison and you know they also arrest Fi Duong for being there at the Capitol. So that, that was like really the first reference to those undercover officers. And since then, there has been video uh, leaked actually of that specific undercover officer. He's on video encouraging people to go forward. You know, go, go, move up. You know, he's he, when he was trying to ascend that northwest staircase, people were going up, and so he was trying to climb up with them and so he was encouraging people to go forward and sort of also get out of the way so that you know he can go forward and so that is sort of um you know the those words that he was on he recorded himself on camera saying were mild in comparison to a lot of the you know videos of provocateurs on the bullhorns or whatever but that is one instance where you know hey this person is a federal this person is a federal officer he's a member of the metropolitan police department he was there on undercover assignment and these are his words and that the department of justice has even acknowledged yes he, this is him on video these are his words and so you know i wrote an article on that and anyone can go look at those court filings watch that video and see you know, this is his words. So the rest of the members of that unit, you know, the ones we know that were there undercover, uh, we don't necessarily know what all they were saying. Um, you know, some of that video, I believe, is not even available to the defendants um, as part of discovery. Uh, either they didn't take video or the video they took is missing or whatnot. So we're not sure exactly what all of those undercover agents in that unit were doing that day. Yeah. What they're saying, whatnot. But I would suspect um, it, it's more in line with what what that one specific officer we know is doing, which is you know saying go go in, in the specific instance when he's you know trying to get people to move forward so he can move forward as well. I doubt that they were the more um, you know fiery and passionate ones who you know spent an hour on the bullhorn saying go forward and whatnot. But, you know, I think that's still very concerning that a member of the Metropolitan Police Department would be engaging uh, in, in that sort of speech as he is undercover. So that's, that's sort of like on the solid, very factual end of things. As you get in more on the conjecture side, um, you know, what I've heard the reporting has been from, from people who are familiar with this issue is that basically it would be the pattern and practice of... Um, certain federal agencies to have undercover officers, undercover agents in any crowd of this size, just, you know, observing what's going on, whatnot. And once again, that is not necessarily acting as provocateurs. Hopefully they would not be acting as provocateurs. But once again, anytime the government is being non-transparent about something, it's like we, we as the citizens have no way to know what those those agents were doing when we don't have transparency so and then you have beyond that where you know were were they infiltrating to this to a level that was beyond what they would ordinarily do for a large event um you know with with a specific purpose to stir things up and there you know that that's on the most conjectural side because we do not have evidence of that 
but it's one of those things where the lack of evidence is not evidence that it didn't happen because when you're getting into the intelligence agencies, they are very secretive. So we would expect that if this did happen, we would not have any evidence. So it's sort of on on each person to uh, figure out what what they want to believe when there is this this lack of evidence. Yeah, and I I believe they they refuse to comment um, when asked about it in Congress. Um, so denial is normally pretty easy to do if you're not involved. Um, but yeah, yeah. Well, well, some of that they they can't. They they won't either deny it or accept. They won't deny it even when they weren't doing it. Because if they denied it when they weren't doing it, then their lack of denial would be evidence that they were actually doing it. So they'll they'll refuse to deny things even that they know didn't happen. So that that's not really strong evidence that it happened. True. Because they they will deny that you know or refuse to deny something just to, you know keep people on their toes. It's tricky, tricky stuff. Okay, so then um, since since the the actual um january 6th um insurrection riot whatever you want to call it um patriotic walk through the capital <laughs> whatever <laughs> wherever you, you stand on that you know that that's on you that's on you oh <laughs> uh, i don't know i don't know if i'd call it an insurrection i definitely wouldn't call it nothing but i don't think i'd call it an insurrection normally for an insurrection people turn up armed um but you know. yeah yeah and that was the thing i saw you know i saw people who had picked up you know batons from well look you know police batons that they had probably picked up from an officer you know there are people with pepper spray people with flagpoles you know that was that was a common commonly used implement as a weapon is is the flagpole but in general you know guns no rioter on january 6 fired off a single shot there were a couple with guns um, but I believe that the amount of guns in the crowd was certainly much smaller than that group of people would have been carrying on an ordinary day. Um, because, you know, many of these people are the type of person like me who has a gun on them every day. But when, when I went to D.C., I left my gun home because uh, the, the District of Columbia does not really respect the right of citizens to keep in their arms. And so... Yeah, the fact that they arrested some people and they had guns, it's like, well, yeah, and you arrested a lot of people <laughs> who would normally have carried guns, but specifically left them home. And so, yeah, in terms of being an armed insurrection, these, it, it's pretty obvious these, these people could have came with a lot more weapons if they wanted to. So you can sort of uh, read into that what you will in terms of intent. But on the other hand, uh, if you are a rioter trying to riot, there's an advantage in not using your gun because once you start using your guns, the police start using their guns as well. And probably all of the police officers, you know, whether they have riot gear or whatnot, they're all going to have a gun. And so one person starts shooting. If the police all start shooting, that is going to go uh, very badly for the crowd. Okay, so then on to the court case. Um, so a lot of people have been sentenced. Yeah, to my surprise. Yeah, uh, so there's a. There, it felt like um, the courts have come down very hard on um, a lot of the people involved, and I 
feel some of the punishments and some of the sentences had been overzealous, um, especially uh, when you consider people like Owen Troyer, who didn't actually go inside, um, being sentenced to like, 60, 60 days in prison. Yeah, here it is, 60 days in prison for Owen Troyer. Uh, yeah, so so with with specifically with the case of Owen Troyer, I'll make a point because um, generally there there are these laws that they enforce to some extent. You know, if you're protesting, they tell you don't protest here. You protest there anyway. They arrest you. They give you a fifty dollar fine. Maybe some community service. They send you on your way. You know, I believe last year they they arrested you know AOC, some of the other congressmen because they went they wanted to get arrested. So they get arrested, pay their fine, go on their way. But even even when uh, uh, Colbert, I don't know if you remember this, when uh, Stephen Colbert, his his late night crew, they went into the Capitol. They were waiting outside some some representative's door. They were told to leave. They came back anyway. They ended up getting arrested. They were going to charge them under that same you know fifty dollar fine statute. Um, until they drop the charges. But that's, that's you know, the pattern practice in D.C. You violate whatever rules near the Capitol buildings. They arrest you, $50 fine, you go. On January 6th, they decided, hey, we're going to, we're going to charge them in a completely different court using completely different laws. So that's why you see, um, instead of a $50 fine, you see six months in prison, a year in prison for just the, the lowest misdemeanors that they're charging or, you know, home detention or probation if they plead guilty. But uh, Schroyer is a particular case because he had been arrested previously um, for like standing up and making a ruckus during some hearing a couple years before. So he had actually signed an agreement saying, hey, you know, during this period, I, I won't return to the Capitol and I will do whatever community service or whatnot. So when he was entering Capitol grounds, uh, he wasn't just violating whatever law there was. They were, you know, alleged for this new arrest. He was also violating his previous agreement from when he was previously arrested. So I think that yeah. Yeah, uh, definitely played a role in his sentencing, which was different than pretty much all the other January 6th defendants because they didn't have that sort of previous agreement not to enter capital grounds. So agreed as part of the case not to utter loud, threatening, or abusive language or to engage in any disorderly of disruptive content conduct to any place on the United States capital grounds. And I'm fairly sure that he argued that he was trying to get people not to go in as far as I'm aware. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think, yeah, the, the InfoWars crew who was there, um, yeah, I think Alex Jones was, when, when, basically when they were facing off with, when the crowd was facing off with the police on the west side, he was telling people, hey, you're supposed to be on the east side of the Capitol because that is where, um, you know, they had given them permits to gather for some of these events. So I think, you know, that was what Alex Jones, and I think Owen Troyer was with them is they were there trying to get people to um, move from the west side of the Capitol to the east side of the Capitol where, you know, they, they were they had this, you know, permitted area. Yeah. Yeah. And then so it says here, um, according to NBC, the wonderful source of news that they are. 
Uh, about 1,100 defendants have been charged in connection with the capital attacks in 2021, and more than 600 have been sentenced, and more than 370 of them to periods of incarceration. Um, so prior to that, it had all been people who, yeah, individuals inside the capital. I'm not sure if you've actually seen this, by the way. Um, 40 minutes ago, Ray Epps was charged. Yeah, I, I did see that. I did uh, see that. We'll go into that in a minute. But so I want to talk about your case because it's uh, completely insane to me. Um, so you have been charged with entering or remaining in a restricted area, disorderly of disruptive content in a restricted area, disorderly conduct in a Capitol building, and parading, demonstrating, or picketing in the Capitol building. I mean, wow. Uh, so uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about the case and, and, and what happened? Yeah, so basically, you know, when I, when I entered Capitol grounds, when I entered the Capitol, all of my behavior, you know, on Capitol grounds in the Capitol, I knew for sure in my mind why I was doing it, which was I was recording video. I was trying to document the obviously newsworthy events that, that I saw occurring around me, um, you know, with, with the intent to, to use my, uh, my First Amendment rights, freedom of the press, to publish that. Um, yeah, I, I was not expecting the Department of Justice to want to come after me for that. Um, and so, so yeah, I basically, um, on the, the morning of January 7th, the morning after I had published my video. And so I reached out to the FBI with a tip saying, Hey, um, you know, I have this video. I, this video shows people assaulting the police. Uh, this, this video shows property damage. And so I would like to share it with you. I had some, some technical difficulty uploading it directly. So I was like, Hey, you know, here's my name, here's my email address, here's my phone number, here's my home address. Um, you know, hey, I, I want to get this video to you. And so I was expecting to like hear back right away, like, you know, this is how you can send us the video. I didn't um, until one day, I think that the next week or so, that the FBI agents dropped by my house. I was at work, so they, they came to the office and they were like, they had some, uh, the document, they had some papers. I'm not sure exactly what it was, but I could see on the cover they had some of that, the like uh, stills from the surveillance camera of the DC bomber. And I can under I can explain why I put the bomber in quotes later. <laughs> that's that's a whole different story. But they're like, hey, we want to ask you some questions. Whether you know about this person who left pipe bombs. So I exercise my Sixth Amendment right to counsel, as every American should do when questioned by the police. So I got an attorney, arranged an interview with them, and basically, you know, told them told them the whole story. Uh, of what I had witnessed, whatnot. And then they came back, you know, a month or so later and were like, we are charging you with these misdemeanors that we are charging all of the January 6th defendants with. Uh, so you're, yeah, so you're being charged. I, I can't believe that they're actually, like, that they, they've charged you. So um, I'm right in saying that the jury deliberated for, like, less than 90 minutes? Yeah, around around 90 minutes. Uh you know, is, is when we got the notice that they had reached a verdict, apparently on the, the verdict form, it was around 80 minutes, you know, that somehow uh, uh, Scott McFarlane and the, the mainstream media journalists got a hold of the jury verdict form. And, you know, yeah, that's the time, about 80 minutes. So then, and your sentencing hearing has been scheduled for January. 
Um, Judge Kelly yes. has asked for briefings on the Rule 29 motion made by my lawyers, which argues that the evidence is insufficient to sustain a conviction. So do you want to explain a little bit about what that means? Yeah, so basically, in America, uh, anytime you're, you're at trial, um, you know, you're a criminal defendant, I, I think the rules are similar in, both, in most of the state courts as well as the federal courts, is that basically after the end of the government's case, your lawyer makes a motion saying the government has not shown enough evidence that basically no reasonable jury could could come to this conclusion. So the judge should just strike this charge because um, you know th they haven't proven the elements of a doubt to a degree where a jury could consider this and and come to this ruling. So you know my lawyers made that motion as many lawyers make in many cases. Um, you know, you, you generally don't don't hope to have uh, it, it's not something you do because you think that the judge will rule positively. It's just something that basically the lawyers always do, um, because if if there is some remote chance that the judge grants it, you know, they they have to make that motion for the judge to be able to make that ruling. So I guess we're, we are sort of a little surprised at the end of the trial that the judge would ask for uh, written briefings instead of just ruling against the motion. Um, but we don't we don't really know what that means. But I guess we, we will be putting together that uh, you know sort of the, the written briefing instead of just the oral motion. Then the judge will consider it and come to whatever ruling he has. So I guess like my, my I'm I'm just honestly I'm really confused as to like what what the case that they made against you was because um, as far as I'm aware, unless the Capitol grounds does not exist within the United States of America, that you that filming as a journalist is protected under first amendment rights well there are many journalists who documented the capitol riot presumably believing that yes they they would be protected um not even just the first amendment but the the general principle that you know it, it's in the public interest to have journalists cover events like this um so, so we are not allowed to make a direct First Amendment argument to the jury. We are not allowed to argue that this behavior was protected by the First Amendment. Um, you know, I was able to to argue my motivation because you know some of these charges have an intent factor. You know, you have to intend to disrupt Congress or intend to do this or intend to do that. So, you know, we I got up on the stand, testified, you know, told told my story, told them why I was there. And basically, the, the government's argument was um, basically some, uh, basically my behavior captured on video, having the police officers talk about, you know, how scared they were and how difficult it was for them to clear out the rioters and how they couldn't tell the difference between rioters and members of the media. And, you know, they, they showed some, some, uh, private Facebook conversations I had with, you know, a friend of mine who is a very ardent Trump supporter, um, unlike me, who is not a Trump supporter at all, and also like showing groups I had been a member of on my Facebook, you know, some right wing groups. And so, you know, I, I really have no idea what it was for the jury that made them decide this. Um, you know, they, they have no obligation to to explain their their reasoning beyond just giving the verdict. So, you know, that that was the, the jury and that that's what they ruled. 
is the verdict they returned. Yeah, and it seems honestly, it seems like maybe maybe this is more standard practice than I imagine. But it seems really strange that you weren't allowed to argue your first amendment rights. Uh, did your lawyer say anything about that being out of the ordinary? Um. Well. It's kind of complicated because, you know, basically that the First Amendment doesn't really exist as a criminal defense. Um, the, the First Amendment lawsuits you generally see are civil cases where people are suing the government, arguing that whatever law or application of the law is violating their First Amendment rights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's... So in court, when you're arguing to a jury, the judge doesn't really allow you to make those arguments because they, you know, basically that the legal system is that that's not something for the jury to decide. You know, that that's something you can argue in motions at some point or um, maybe you appeal it, appeal it saying that the law is unconstitutional or the application of the law is unconstitutional or you sue in civil court or whatnot. But generally... Yeah, the, the First Amendment is not used um, as a criminal defense. At least they don't like it to be. So that if you if you try to argue that to the jury, that the judge will shut you down. Just I I'm I'm baffled. Uh, sorry, I'm just looking for some legal precedent here that says something similar. Uh, we've got the Supreme Court in Chicago Police Department versus Mosley saying, above all else, the First Amendment means the government has no power to restrict expression, blah, 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 to commit the current self-fulfillment, yada, yada, yada. Any restriction on expressive activity because of the content would be completely undercut the profound national commitment to the principle that debate on public issues should be uninhibited, robust, and wide open. Yeah, so basically when when you're charged with with some some crime relating to protesting, you know, the the that aspect of the first amendment or the religious aspect of the first amendment or the press aspect of the first amendment, you know, they they really crammed a lot of rights into that first amendment. Yeah. But you can there are some arguments you can make in motions before the trial, you know, asking the judge to dismiss the case or in our case we we made selective prosecution motions basically arguing that they were they were violating our rights because there were so many journalists that also entered the Capitol and you know, the Capitol grounds, the restricted area also entered the Capitol. We're in basically every, every area I went to in the Capitol, there were other journalists who also entered the Capitol that were in that same area. So we tried to make that argument. Uh, we were unsuccessful. and But before the jury, um, they they don't really allow you to to make those arguments specifically along First Amendment grounds. That seems really mad. I'm trying to think of a comparative example with a different um, a different amendment, but I can't think of one that might. But I can't I can't think of another amendment that would. I mean, unless you were in a a trial where they were like, uh, yeah, it would have to be, say, if you're accused of carrying a gun. In somewhere that they said you weren't allowed to carry a gun and you were like well that's my second amendment right or something like that but i'm not sure it's quite the same yeah yeah i mean it, it gets complicated 
but yeah, generally, generally the, the idea of the, the court and the judges is that that is a legal question, not a factual question. So the, the jury uh, is the, the decider of fact. So they decide the factual questions. They don't decide the legal questions. Okay. Mm. I still think it's really fucked that you have been convicted as a journalist, I, cause, because I, yeah, yeah. I, I, <laughs> with my sentencing still coming up, you know, uh, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am yeah, not I, commenting on uh, my <laughs> yeah, opinion of the, the jury or the judge or the legal system, mm. um, you know, as an opinion, yeah, so, as, as a fact, you know, that that's what we were uh, allowed to argue or, or not allowed to argue. Mm. Well, that's very wild. Anyway, man, um, I, I, yeah, th this has been an, an absolute, yeah, roller coaster. <laughs> and I'm sure, yeah, sure, not quite the roller coaster you've been on over the past year and a half, I'm sure. Um, and I, I very much hope that the sentencing hearing goes your way and that there is no prison time involved or perhaps even that they get dismissed on the grounds that there's not enough evidence to sustain a conviction i really really hope um not just for you personally um but for yeah journalism and freedom of the press generally in america uh you're the only country that one of the only countries i believe that that upholds freedom of speech as as such a high ideal within your nation and I really hope that that, that continues. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, uh, I appreciate you having me on today. No problem, man. Um, is there anything you want to point people towards? Uh, your documentary, obviously, I've been sort of like bringing up clips of it while we've been talking for people to w look at. And I'll, I'll put the link in the description below so everyone can go and watch your work. Um, is there anything else you want to point people towards? Yeah, I mean, you, you can go to the website, j6documentary.com. You can watch the full documentary there. And if you want to, to donate to help with my uh, legal costs and the cost of the documentary as well, there is a donate link on that website. Well, thanks very much for your time, man. I really, really appreciate it. It's, it's been a pleasure. So, okay, thank yeah, you. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for making it right the way to the end of the podcast. I love that you tuned in this long. Do me a favor, hit subscribe because 80% of you bastards are not subscribing, but you're watching my videos. See you next time.